I'm Alifair Burke, and this is Writer Types. This is Alex Segura. I'm Lori Rader Day. This is Marcia Clark. This is Laura McHugh. I'm Don Winslow. This is Kelly Garrett. Really good question. Well, that's an interesting question. Ooh, good question. This is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and joining me today for the fun is author Hallie Sutton. Hi, Hallie. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, we were supposed to be celebrating the release of your debut novel, The Lady Upstairs, but that release has been pushed until November. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You know, uh, can't really be too upset about it given the state of the world, and maybe in November we'll have a different idea of where we're at. So just get to prolong the excitement of debut year a little more for me. Oh, I like that uh, silver lining. Yeah, I try. (laughs) Well, now I have read this book uh, and I can attest that it is great. This is a deep slice of L.A. noir. This city will never run out of noir tales, will it? No, I don't think so. I think L.A. lends itself so well to noir. I mean, something about murder and the sunshine and then also just its history and, you know, being one of the birthplaces of noir and deep, deep roots of corruption and murder. It just all collides perfectly. Well, now you've been plugging away for a while now, and now with this book you've got coming out, it's on a big five publisher, and uh, that would, to a lot of struggling writers, that would seem like, well, you just, you hit the lottery, and now it's all just coasting from here. I mean, as soon as you sign that contract, does all that struggle and hard work fade away, and, and it all became worth it? You know, it felt very surreal and very exciting. It all, it definitely all felt worth it, but I don't think it feels like a coast by any means. You know, there's always the fear or question of what next, you know, is this, this book may be a big five, but who knows what's coming next in the future for me. And I don't, I don't write with a certain end to be published in a certain way. I write because I love to write and I have stories I want to tell. So um, I am curious to see where it goes. I hope to have a long career, and I imagine that means I'll be kind of all over the place. So who knows? Oh, see, you passed the test. That was a, almost a trick question to see if you were just going <laughs> to try to slide by, but you, that is the perfect answer. Oh, thank you. You mean if I just <laughs> like, yes, perfect. It was worth it. <laughs> the right answer. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Now you're just, you're just going to coast by on this one and, and they're just going to throw book contracts at you from here on out, right? That's totally how it works. That's how all of my family thinks it works for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, now one of the hallmarks of noir is a rather cynical worldview. Uh, so far, it sounds like that's not you. You seem to have a pretty positive attitude about things. You know, I would say that uh, I have both. I have a positive attitude about things, and I do have a very cynical side to me. So it was really fun and maybe cathartic in a way to kind of unleash the fullness of my cynicism via my main character, Joe, who's kind of about, I would say, as acidic a character I can write and still feel like I'm writing a human being. Um, I kind of imagine that for maybe my next book or two, you know, if I, I love noir and I want to stay in, stay in that lane. Um, so there has to be a certain amount of cynicism, but maybe not as strongly as Joe. Joe is pretty acerbic, which was very fun to write. But I think that maybe part of the reason I can be more positive and more upbeat in a different areas of my life is because I have that outlet. Well, there you go. So I, th- I think it sounds like writing is uh, is a healthy thing for you. And if you 
were not able to write this kind of thing, then we wouldn't want to be around you. <laughs> if I weren't able to write this kind of thing, I would for sure be on one of those investigation discovery things. I'm not saying that I would be the person who had snapped, but I would be talking about those murders a lot in a very public way that would probably make a lot of people who loved me uncomfortable. So <laughs> this is the compromise. <laughs> So the lady upstairs, uh, it's it's available for pre-order, so we still can talk about it. And and you know, this is the kind of story that I felt like had a lot of unique Los Angeles elements to it. And yet, I, the great thing about a, a good noir story and, and these kind of characters is that they really are dealing with the most base human emotions. I mean, this isn't something that had to be set in LA or had to even be set in this time period when when you're dealing with this kind of story you know you someone who's been wronged and someone who wants to seek revenge and someone who maybe is uh, going to do some things outside of the law if it means benefiting themselves I mean those are just universal themes that never go away right right I think so I don't think my book had to be set in LA I think uh, when I started writing it, I had just moved to Los Angeles and it felt like an interesting way to kind of dig into the city that I was still trying to learn. Part of the story revolves around things that we've been seeing come up in conversation, you know, with the Me Too movement and sexual harassment and bad men doing bad things and getting away with it or, you know, bad men doing not so great things and kind of coasting on it. And is one of the themes of what my book kind of deals with is women who decide to to take it upon themselves to change that, but not necessarily in a healthy or morally positive way. Um, but those, those are things that have been around for forever. You know, I've had people ask me about if I, if I wrote the book in response to Me Too stuff and actually started writing it before there was any of the Me Too movement. It just is that these things have been happening forever. We just have a name for them now. Yeah, maybe not healthy or morally positive, but profitable. Profitable, for sure. Profitable and uh, ways that it were cathartic for my characters and for me as a writer. <laughs> well, and I can attest it for me as a reader because, yeah, it's too often that we see people get away with bad behavior for too long. And you just, oh, it's so satisfying to see them get taken down a peg or, you know, maybe lose several thousand dollars in the process. <laughs> yes. Hit them where it hurts. And for some men, that's the wallet. <laughs> so while we wait for the for the novel, where can people find and read some of your work? Uh, so I have work published on Crime Reads, actually. I am lucky enough to be a fairly frequent contributor there, and I think that's such a great site. I've been featured a few times on um, a podcast called Unlikable Female Characters, which is hosted by Kristen LaPianca, Lane Fargo, and Wendy Hurd, who are all three fabulous writers that should definitely you should check them out if you haven't already. Um, and they are uh, doing interesting work kind of deconstructing what makes uh, female characters unlikable. And it's about feminism and writing and murder. And it's very interesting. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I highly recommend unlikable female characters podcast that they, they have, they managed to take uh, serious subjects, still have a lot of fun with it. And yet deconstruct it in a really interesting in, in a way that is interesting for both writers and readers, I think. Yes. And they're just all very funny, which is such a nice benefit. Yes. <laughs> all right. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and uh, we're going to ask you to settle it for us once and for all. Uh-oh. Which is the most noir city, New York or LA? Oh, LA by far. Oh, wow. You didn't have to think about it. <laughs> Sorry, New York. No way. <laughs> 
said, I have no statistical data to back this up. I don't even have an anecdote. I just have a feeling. Again, to me, it comes back to there is something so um, chilling about murder in the sunshine. And I think that that is something for me that I find very compelling. Kind of similarly, when we talk about Florida noir with people like Vicki Hendricks or different people who are writing uh, about murder in the sunshine, to me, that is just the most noir. It doesn't get more noir than L.A. Well, I would agree with you. I, I'll, here, I'll, I'll share my my theory okay. that I've developed about L.A. noir, because I think going west has always been a way to reinvent, to restart, sometimes to escape. You know, if you commit a, a murder in New York and you need to get out of town, you head west. Mm-hmm. And it's a place of reinvention. It's a place of hopes and dreams. You know, people who come to Hollywood and, and try to seek their fame and fortune. And I think there's something that's very telling about being in Los Angeles that if you make it here and you fail mm-hmm. and you get that desperate, there's nowhere else to go because you run into the ocean. There's It's literally a dead end in the American dream. And I think that has built into so many LA noir stories. And LA is such a patchwork city too. You know, I feel like I didn't really understand that until I moved there that it feels more like 92 small cities stapled together than one cohesive city. And something about that too, that I think allows for this kind of shifting identity that I think is really uh, interesting in noir too. And like you said, kind of starting over and LA is the perfect place to start over because LA starts itself over all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk to our first guest, shall we? Excellent. S.A. Cosby is the author of My Darkest Prayer and the brand new novel Blacktop Wasteland, which has the crime fiction community absolutely salivating in anticipation. And I can assure you the hype is real. I have read it and this book is great. I mean, Hallie, is there anything else you can compare that feeling of waiting for your book to come out? No, I I am so excited about Blacktop Wasteland and feel like I've been hearing about this book for months. I have been hearing about this book for months. And we originally um, shared a pub date of July 14th when The Lady Upstairs was first supposed to come out. So if my book can't come out then, I'm so excited that I don't have to wait longer for this book. (laughs) And you're so so excited you don't have to duke it out with Sean on the shelves, right? (laughs) I am very fine with having my pub date moved away because I think Sean's book is going to be astronomically huge. S.A. Cosby. Uh, do we continue to call you S.A. or can we call you Sean since we know that's your name? You can call me Sean. S.A. was my attempt at being cool. It, you know, it failed miserably, but Sean is fine. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it works. <laughs> well, Blacktop Wasteland is finally here. This has uh, been one of the most anticipated crime novels of the year. Everyone is talking about it. Now, since I've, I myself have never been in a position of being highly anticipated... Uh, and Hallie has unfortunately seen her book delayed until November. You'll have to tell us what it's like. We're going to live vicariously through you for a minute here, Sean. When I first got the, the, the deal and everything, and we they kind of gave us the, the date. Of course, nobody knew, you know, all the, everything was going to happen with the pandemic and the world catching on fire. It seemed like a long way off. And you, were, I was kind of anxious, like, oh, man, I wish it could come out sooner but as it gets closer to the date that it drops i feel somewhat like a passenger on a runaway one runaway train and it's like i'm hoping that (laughs) there's an engineer or somebody on board that'll not slow things down but is in control because it's it's it can be overwhelming especially 
I come from a very, uh, let's say, hard scrabble background in my regular day, regular life and my writing life, you know, and so I, my background was really independent, the independent scene. And so writing short stories and, you know, my first book, Dark, My Darkest Prayer, came out with a great independent published out of Maryland. But it's such a different scale when you're with someone like Flatiron. It's a totally different world. It's like going from riding a bicycle to riding like a panhead Harley Davidson motorcycle. It's it's just a totally different <laughs> experience. I'm holding on for dear life and see and just you know just wait to see what happens. Yeah, well, it's I've I've been there with the independence uh, thing, and uh, boy, I got to tell you, 25 books in, uh, yes, it's 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 a bit like riding a bicycle. I feel more feel like I'm more. Like, I guess I'm on a unicycle, but. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, but, you know, the independent scene is just that it's it's very rock and roll, punk rock. And you do a lot of your own, you know, they do some promotion, but, you you know, you do a lot of your own promotion. Me and my good my good friend, uh, Eric Pruitt, who's a great writer in his own right. Him and I, uh, he and I uh, jumped in the car and we've done like a Noir the Bar East Coast tour before. You know, I've gone down North Carolina and done events with him and him. He and I have put a lot of miles on our cars and our bodies, you know, promoting our work because that's the nature of the independent scene. And so. It's fun. I mean, I'm not going to lie, but it is kind of weird because everything's, not everything's taken out of your hands. That's not the way I want to say it. It's a lot of people are doing things for you that you had to do yourself before. And so it's a very unique feeling. Absolutely. Uh, So Sean, is Beauregard your main character? Is he a character or protagonist you feel like you connected with more than others? Or do you feel the same empathy and connection to all your characters as you're writing them? I think I feel the same empathy and connection to all my characters because I, even the villains, I try to look at things from their point of view. I mean, there's an old line that, you know, a villain is a hero in his own story. I don't know if I believe that 100%. I think, you know, I think a, a, a bad person knows they're a bad person. They just justify it because of what they want to do and what they want to achieve. And so I feel empathy and a connection with all my characters. That being said, Beauregard was a way for me to maybe excise some of my own personal demons. Writing Blacktop Wasteland was very cathartic for me. You know, Beauregard's relationship with his father and his mother is, I wouldn't say similar to my relationship with my parents, but if if, if Beauregard's relationship with his parents is 11, my relationship with my parents is a two. You know, my mom and dad separated when I was young. And, you know, there was, and, you know, and everything that comes with that is definitely something that affected me. And I don't think until writing Black Tie Wasteland, I really dealt with it honestly, in a good way, in a healthy way. And so Beauregard allowed me to do that. But, you know, I love Beauregard just as much as I love Nathan Waymaker, just as much as I love, you know, Ronnie Sessions or, you know, Lazy Mothersbaugh or Skunk from Darkest Prayer. I, I love all those characters because I don't think they're reflections of me so much as a lot of times they're reflections of the way I see things. Now, Sean, you and I have both written about guys who drive cars for criminals. <laughs> uh, and I know uh, we've we've talked about like my novel Rum Runners. We, we had you had some nice things to say, and I appreciate that. Uh, but now when you were reading my books, were you thinking to yourself, well, hell, I can do better than that? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but reading books like Rum Runners allowed me to see a path forward. I, I wanted to write a book like Black Tie Wasteland for a long time, even before I wanted to write a detective novel. And I just wasn't sure how to really get that story going. And I wasn't sure if 
if the, if there was a way to relate that story, you know, I'm a gearhead. I grew up around cars. You know, I grew up with uncles who souped up, you know, Mavericks and Chevelles and um, even Gremlins. I had my, my cousin had a souped up Gremlin, if you can imagine it. So I grew up wow. around cars and, and I grew up, you know, I've told a story before. I grew up really poor. And so you learn to be a shade tree mechanic because you can't afford to take it to a real garage. And I learned little tricks. Like I'm, <laughs> one time when we, I was with my cousin, our car, my car broke down, the fan belt broke. And um, there was some, uh, some young ladies with us at the time. And he asked one of them for um, a pair of pantyhose and he used the pantyhose to make a fan belt. So things like wow. that have always, just enough to get us home. And so things like that have stuck in my head. And I always wanted to, re- to write a story like that. And I didn't really know how. And then I read your book, Run, Run, Run Murders with the McGraw family, which is just an awesome book. And I've seen movies like Drive and old movies like uh, Gator or White Lightning. And so kind of putting all those things together allowed me to maybe take a stab at this and see how it goes. Because it's, I think it's important if you're not a gearhead or you're not a car person, I still wanted people to be able to enjoy the book. I mean, I don't I don't think you need to know the difference between, you know, like a four barrel carburetor and fuel injection or anything like that to understand the intensity of the book. I hope I hope that comes through. Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, redemption is a big theme in Blacktop Wasteland. Where do you stand on redemption? Do you think people can change who they are and start fresh or do you think redemption looks different than that? I think to quote uh, the great uh, Jules Winterfield, I like to believe that, but I don't know if that's just true. I think, I think, I think it's hard. I think to really change, you really have to want to. And people are, you know, inertia is an incredible thing, and people don't normally want to change unless they have to. And so, redemption is a big theme in my writing in general. I think somebody once told me my brand is broken men searching for redemption. I was like, well, I'll, I'll take it, I guess. Um, but uh, I think um, redemption is possible, but I think there has to be such a tectonic shift in your life to make you actually want to redeem yourself so that when I write stories, I try to unfortunately pile on the events or the action to force my characters to to change and to want to change. Because if you don't, most people aren't going to change. It's just like, you know, your uh, New Year's Eve, your New Year's resolutions. We all say we're going to do this and that and the other thing, but three months in, we, re- we usually regress. And I think that's like, that's true with anyone. But I think redemption is possible. I think it's just hard to attain. I mean, and those, those kind of big themes, I think, play so well in crime novels or mystery mm-hmm. novels, any kind of thriller where, where you, like you say, you're amping up the stakes and really turning the screws to the characters. Those kind of themes can, can really integrate so well into that kind of story, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think crime fiction is, you know, a lot of people, if you uh, ascribe to the certain mentality, look at crime fiction as a genre that is of low report, as some people will say. But I think, you know, crime and punishment is a crime novel. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, McTeague by Frank Norris is one of the great classics of American, early American literature, and it's a crime novel. So mm-hmm. I think I think crime speaks to a certain mentality in human beings because, you know, we all understand desperation and pain. And most times, crime is the result of desperation and pain. Very few criminals are the Riddler or the Joker. You know, most people that commit crimes do so because they are at their breaking point, whether it's mentally, physically, or financially. And so I definitely think crime is a great, you know, canvas upon which to like draw those pictures. 
Well, now with the coronavirus, it's kind of cheating you out of a book tour and that opportunity. But uh, <laughs> are you planning on anything fun or special for the release day? Uh, I've got a bottle of uh, Pappy Van Winkle that a good friend gave me a few years ago. <laughs> Actually, a friend that had a lot more confidence in me than I had in myself. And they gave it to me and they said, when you get when you get your book deal, when you get your like big book deal, I want you to crack this open and drink it. And I was like, all right, well, we're gonna, that's going to sit there and gather dust for a while. But um, I've got a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle. I'm going to take a shot when the book releases. I'm probably going to... Um, be allowed to stay in bed all day and nobody bother me so I can just relax and enjoy it. <laughs> i tell you what's funny though. It's almost, I think, maybe a blessing in disguise because I can see myself, if if the coronavirus hadn't happened, I can definitely see myself having a uh, hangover type adventure with Eric Pruitt and Todd Robinson and Rob Hart <laughs> <laughs> getting in trouble and having to have Kelly Garrett come and bail us out. So I definitely, it might be a, a blessing in disguise that I'm not in New York uh, in the Bowery at four o'clock in the morning looking for my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hallie, I think you uh, you got a clue there as to when your book finally comes out. I think you just got permission to stay in bed all day. I think so. I'm <laughs> <laughs> going on a beer and calling Kelly Garrett and asking for help. <laughs> Um, so Sean, you've gotten some incredible quotes for this book from people like Walter Mosley, Dennis Lehane, and Lee Child, who said he more than recommends Blacktop Wasteland. But outside of the book world, is there anyone whose reaction to the book you just really cherished that they enjoyed it? My aunt is a practicing Southern Baptist Pentecostal, not a lapsed one like me, but she's always been one of my biggest supporters in my writing. Even when I was a little kid, um, she used to give me her old um, Stephen King novels and Harlequin romances to read because I, I used to love to, I still love to read, but I was a voracious reader as a kid. So like I'm nine and 10 years old reading The Shining, which probably explains a lot. But, um, <laughs> and um, she recently told me, she told me, she's like, I like that book. I was like, oh, you liked it? She's like, yeah. And so she says, there's a lot of cursing in it, but other than that, it's great. So that means a lot to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sometimes it's hard to break through to those family members who just who they withhold a compliment so tightly <laughs> that you get, now, you get even the slightest thing you have to cling on to it. Now, it's funny you said it because like you know I love my mom I love her to death you know she's one of the strongest people I've ever met in my life. But man, getting a compliment from her is like pulling hen's teeth. And it's like, so she read Darkest Prayer, and she, I'll never forget, I said, Saj, what'd you think of it? And she said, well, it's not, you know, it's all right. I'm like, oh, gee, thanks. But, <laughs> but she was, I'm very proud of you. Just, and so that's, you know, you, you take those wins where you can. <laughs> Well, Sean, we're all proud of you here at Writer Types. <laughs> Hallie and Thank I are so, so proud. Much. And the book, it really is great. And uh, I'm glad that you, you've you escaped from uh, the independent world after, what is it? Oh, one book. Gosh, I feel so <laughs> sorry for you that you were oh, trapped no, there. It took me so long to write that one book. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I tell you, I wasn't going to even write that book, but Todd Robinson bullied me into it because I I got to visit him in New York and uh, I went by Shade where, he, you know, he manages the bar there. And, and he was like in that indemnable Todd Boston by way of New York accent. He was like, when the hell are you going to write a book? And I'm like, I don't know. Man. He's like, you should write a book. And by the time I left there after numerous rum and cokes, I was like, what the hell? 
I'll write a book. So yeah, John Robinson, thanks, man. We, we all need a mentor in our life, and I guess an angry bartender works as well as anyone, right? <laughs> Help me out, so, you know. <laughs> Well, Hallie, have uh, any of your family members already read The Lady Upstairs, and, and what did they think? My family members have read The Lady Upstairs, which is great because there is a lot of uh, – well, I should say my parents have read The Lady Upstairs, which is great because there's a lot of adult content that uh, I didn't want to sandbag them with once it was published. I don't know if it's what they would have loved to have received as my first book, but they have been very supportive of it, so I feel very lucky. Well, that's good. No, no one was shocked to think, oh my gosh, they're, she's, she's secretly writing about me. Uh, no, no one thought that. Um, I Okay, Eric, really fast. I have an anecdote that's pretty inappropriate. Is it okay to share or should I just not? Oh, no. Now you have to. So my um, book, The Lady Upstairs, is dedicated to my parents. And I think the dedication goes something like, to my parents who didn't even flinch when their baby girl handed them this book. And my parents got to see that on the galley and my mom saw it and she started crying. She was very moved. And my dad saw it and he goes, yeah, your mom didn't even know what anal beads were before your book. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) So that was their reaction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. And uh, can I say, thank goodness she didn't know. Exactly. I was like, I guess I'm glad to know that about you guys. (laughs) Oh, my. It's time for an unpanel segment. uh, And this time, the anthology Low Down Dirty Vote uh, was a big hit in 2018. And now they're back for more in this rather pivotal election year, shall we say, with uh, Low Down Dirty Vote 2. Editor Misty Berry has gathered another incredible group of writers to take on voter suppression, voter fraud, and all things criminal surrounding voting. The best part is that all proceeds go to the Southern Poverty Law Center. So we asked a few of the contributors to come on for an unpaneled segment, and we asked them, why does crime fiction go so well with voting? Hey, this is Dave Haggerty from Lowdown Dirty Vote 2. Eric asked me to talk about why are crime and politics a good fit. Well, in Chicago, where I grew up, crime and politics are inseparable. I came of age during the era of Richard J. Daley, who was the last big city boss. And in his regime, corruption and fraud weren't just accepted, they were expected. Also, in my lifetime, more than half the governors from Illinois ended up incarcerated, headlined by Hot Rod Blagojevich, who you may recall tried to auction off President Obama's Senate seat. All my fiction reflects that link, with murder and intimidation motivating elections and legislation. The hero of my series of political thrillers is Duncan Cochran, who uses his office as governor to avenge his daughter's killing. However, his MO as the law and order governor also draws him into a whole bunch of other criminal cases. For the first volume of Lowdown Dirty Vote, I wrote about his primary race, where Chicago's political machine tried all its usual dirty tricks to defeat him. My piece for the second anthology is a bit more soft-boiled, but it still draws on the state's history of voter fraud. Back in 1982, Illinois was the national focus in the fight to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. Thirty states had already ratified it, but two more were needed, and advocates naively thought that public pressure could get the legislature in Illinois to act. 
So they spent weeks in the Capitol Rotunda, chanting and singing and chaining themselves to the railing. And when that didn't work, they started a hunger strike and they were rallying outside the homes of their favorite Pauls. Even though I was barely a teenager at the time, I remember it pretty well because my mom was heavily into the League of Women Voters. I even remember her marching in the Bicentennial Parade, dressed up like Lady Liberty with her torch and her crown, an image that I used at the start of my story. Truth is, I didn't have to invent much to create drama in that fiction. I put Duncan at the center of the fight, with the activists and his wife to his left, and the good old boy network in the legislature to his right. I'm not giving away any more of the story. You're going to have to buy a copy of Lowdown Dirty Vote for yourself and read. Hi, this is Pooja Guha, one of the authors from the Lowdown Dirty Vote second collection. Uh, to answer the question, why are crime and politics a good fit? There's a couple of pieces to the answer, but I think the most important that comes to mind for me is that's where the stakes are highest. And that's why it's such a great thing to write about in fiction. When we have politics, where we have policy, that affects so many people. By affecting so many people, we can really raise the stakes. Plus, it's just fun and interesting because I think that power is often the center of where crime can take place. It's also where justice can take root as well. And so you have this great rivalry between crime and justice in the center of power. And so that's one of the reasons I really like to center my crime stories in political themes. And one of the reasons that I was so excited about participating in this anthology. This is Jackie Ross Flom from Low Down Dirty Vote 2. It's long been a favorite passion of mine, the political process, voting rights. And this is just a golden opportunity for me to wed my fiction writing interest with my political interest. You ask why crime and politics is a good fit. When has it never been a good fit? In America, or actually, I guess you could say all over the world, but particularly in America, crime and politics have worked hand in hand, from voter suppression, to murder, to bribery. Name the crime, and there has probably been a political overtone. I was born and raised in Kentucky, and in Kentucky, Politics was a blood sport. I mean that literally. If you go in and look up Kentucky and politics, you will see stories about feuds and murder and shootings at the polling place. One of those shootings at the polling places involved one of my ancestors. And so I decided to use that story and it became Low Down Dirty Vote 2's short story, Too Dead, Too Wounded. And Hallie, I hate to be a cynical American, but there is definitely something where crime and politics are almost forever linked in my head. They they, they go together all too well. And I, I, I hate feeling that way, but it, you kind of can't get away from it, can you? No, you definitely can't. I mean, given what we know about the last election and interference, and um, I think all of us have a lot of anxiety going into the 2020 election, it does feel like an uncomfortable marriage that I wish, I too wish I didn't have that association, but I think it's hard to get away from. Yeah. I think going all the way back to 
Uh, I guess Nixon is where it seemed to change and we all became cynical. You remember Nixon, right? You were. Sure. Yeah. You're you're 65, right? I just sound much more youthful. (laughs) Can I tell you my favorite? Here's my story with, with Nixon, because I am old. I was like, I was, I think I was four years old living in Northern California. Our car got uh, burglarized. Oh. And uh, I remember my dad talking about it around the same time where he kept saying like, oh, that Nixon is a crook or whatever. And I remember like at four years old, I was like, oh, well, if Nixon's a crook, I bet it was Richard Nixon, dad. I bet he broke into our car. (laughs) You cracked the case. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Destined to become a crime writer. Yeah, exactly. Well, our next guest is S.C. Perkins. Uh, Now, I I don't know who is in charge of booking around here, but we've got an S.A. and an S.C. on today's show. Are we doing it wrong by using our full names, Hallie? I think so. I think you can start calling me H from now on. Well, S.C. Perkins is the author of the Ancestry Detective series, starting with Murder Once Removed. And now the second book, Lineage Most Lethal, is hot off the presses. And we talked to her from her home in Houston, Texas. So book two in your series, Lineage Most Lethal, is out very soon. And I understand you just got your author copies, right? I did. Um, I I got them uh, late yesterday, so I decided to post it about it today. So I'm very excited about that. It's very similar, the, the thrill of holding it in your hand every time you have a new book outright. But but now this, it's we're a year out from your debut. So what's different about releasing a second book from that incredible excitement of a debut novel? Well, I, you know, for me, it's still incredibly exciting. Um, but, you know, you sort of wonder, it's that, that sort of sophomore book, you know, you wonder how it's going to be taken, whether people are going to continue to love it, and whether you're, you know, you're going to have a trajectory that continues upward, hopefully. And there's a little extra stress added in there, but it's still just so much fun and so exciting. I'm over the moon about it. Um, but we'll see. I've I've heard that the second book in a series is usually the least read in a series. Oh, and no. um, yeah, so that was a little factoid I didn't know. I'm hoping that that will not be the case for me, but um, but you'll, you never know. I've noticed a lot of second books in other series that I've loved and read. And, and uh, it does sort of either re- sort of establishes the characters a little bit more and sometimes takes it in a little different direction. In mine, for example, I noticed when I was doing the final edits that it's it has a little bit slightly more serious tone than the first one. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't even think I really even thought about it whenever I was writing it. I was just sort of going off of what I wanted to do. And then I sort of realized that and I thought, okay, well, you know, Scott Montgomery from Book People in Austin called my book, a, my first one, a light thriller. And so maybe it kind of angles more toward the light thriller um, than a true cozy mystery. So, but I'm okay with that. I like both titles. <laughs> so the series is about Lucy, a genealogist who uses her skills to solve crimes. What's your connection to genealogy and what type of research did you have to do? I come from a long line of amateur genealogists all the way back to my great grandfather who wrote about our genealogy and, you know, traced us all the way back to Charlemagne and all of that stuff. And so I've just grown up hearing about my genealogy my whole life. And so whenever I was at a a writer's conference uh, several years ago and they were talking about 
characters having interesting jobs. And, and I thought, wow, genealogy would make a great or a great amateur sleuth. So I went with it and it was just very well received. And I love the idea of, I'm a big history geek myself and fascinated with genealogy in general. So it's been great. And I've made friends with uh, some people who are uh, genealogists. And I'm also in the Daughters of the American Revolution. And there's a lot of amateur genealogists there. So I've gotten a lot of wonderful help. And then I also have my um, one of my aunts, one of my uncles who are extremely good at it. So, uh, so it's been a lot of fun to do the research and make Lucy find all these interesting factoids in history and, and people's uh, family history and then solve a murder out of it. So it's been great. Well, now you write any first book of a series in a bit of a vacuum and you don't know what the response is going to be and you're just sort of, you know, it's that writing for yourself kind of thing. But now in an ongoing series, you do have to kind of take into account reader feedback and, and what people like about the characters as a series progresses. I mean, now Lucy has fans, right? How much do you mm-hmm. have to think about that as you go forward? Well, I I did think about that. I try not to think about it too much whenever I was writing, but as I kind of got into the edits and whatnot, thus far, I've had a really wonderful reception and I am beyond grateful for that to the readers and the reviewers. But I, I did sort of, uh, you know, wonder what to do or how to approach that and everything. And I I, I tried not to think about it too much, but it did sort of factor in a little bit. And I think that's whenever I really started noticing that I had taken just a slightly uh, more serious tone in the book. And I think my third one will it, that I'm wor- working on right now will be uh, along the same, just slightly more serious tone. Was that based on any feedback that you got? Or, or did you hear anything from, from any readers that made you rethink any of Lucy's actions or made, made you think, oh, well, maybe I'll take this in, down this road instead? I, it was it was the latter. I I really I didn't hear anything about um, anyone saying oh it was too cutesy for me or it was too this or too that or whatever. And in fact, like I said, it was actually deemed sort of more of a light thriller, which I loved. And I I think it was just sort of natural for me. Like I said, I did think about it, and we'll just have to see how it turns out. I'm hoping that it will get a great reception. I know my agents and my editors when they read it at first and they. Uh, they really liked the direction that it went in. So fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's the first big battle. So <laughs> congratulations. Right. Right. So some of the most uh, descriptive and evocative moments in the books are used to talk about food. And I know that that's such an important part of uh, Austin culture where the books are set. So is this a case of write what you know? And do you have a favorite taco? Well, yes, a little bit uh, of write what you know. I mean, I, I'm a fifth generation Texan and Tex-Mex is king here. So, you know, growing up, I mean, I can't, I don't think I go a week without eating Mexican food or or, or tacos in some sense and everything. And uh, so, yeah, I I loved putting that in, having a little taqueria. And I wanted um, the taqueria owner who is Flacco. He is, uh, I wanted this, uh, this big sort of larger than life gruff character with the heart of gold that that can kind of be a foil for Lucy and also be sort of a second father figure type thing. And uh, so I had a lot of fun uh, writing that and writing uh, that character. And uh, as for my favorite taco, I actually am pretty simple. I like uh, what's called tacos acrobon, very similar to fajitas. They're very simple and uh, they're grilled over, you know, charcoal and just it's they're really tasty. And that's that's really my favorite. Now I'm hungry. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. Is that, uh, are you uh, out in the backyard making your own or do you have your favorite places that you like to go to? I generally go for fajitas and, and things like that. And most tacos, I generally go and get them because these uh, taquerias and Mexican food places around here can make them far better than I can. <laughs> Well, next time you're in Los Angeles, the three of us are going out because if there's any place in the nation that can compete with Texas for Mexican food, it's Los Angeles. So oh, uh, we, yeah. we, we can we can show you some high quality tacos around here. Right, Hallie? Oh, absolutely. Writer types taco tour of Los Angeles. Oh, I am in. <laughs> well, Where, now, what is y'all's favorite taco while while we're on this subject? Hallie, you go first because I'm so boring. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I'm going to predict you, you're, you're one of those people who goes like the real deep, you're like, oh, I love the the La Lengua and those the <laughs> really... <laughs> Definitely not. I was going to say tacos al pastor because I am a huge fan of pineapple. So when you get it with a little pineapple on there, oh, crispy pork, yeah. delicious. Oh, yes. Nice. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm a chicken guy. I, I know it's boring and, and I'm, I'm such a wimp with spice that I'm always like, whatever your mildest sauce is, please. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love it. Well, okay. Speaking of, of eating, you and I have hung out at several conferences and author gatherings. Usually uh, we go out and have a meal with with a big group of people. Uh, of course, this was all mostly before your, your first book was even published. So now you are a published author and uh, the world has gone crazy. Is this a coincidence? It sh- sh- did you open the gates to something? <laughs> It, it is highly possible because, I mean, all sorts of weird stuff has happened in, you know, to me and around me and everything. And really after her, uh, Hurricane Harvey and then just everything just blew up. So uh, including the fact that I got published and uh, and that was the one good thing. And so um, so you never know, but it, it's it's highly possible. <laughs> so, so, so we can blame you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Lucy has been described in reviews as feisty and plucky. And what ways does that resonate for you as a person? And what ways does Lucy feel both similar and different from you? You know, I've had the same thing said about me. And and there's always a little part of you in your main character, I think, especially in your debut. I wanted Lucy to have sort of a mouth on her and and to be, you know, one of those people who almost gets in trouble a little bit because of her mouth. And, uh, you know, it also makes for some fun dialogue and whatnot, and which is one of my uh, favorite things to write is, is uh, Lucy sort of going up against someone, mostly with the uh, FBI agent in the first book. So, but it's a lot of fun. And I think I'm a little bit like Lucy in that and everything I've been, I've definitely been told I have a mouth on me from time to time. <laughs> I think that one thing that uh, I have really loved writing is that um, in mysteries like these, especially cozy mysteries, they're a a normal person who gets to go out and right or wrong. And that's something that I think that we all really want to do. And so it's a lot of fun to write a character who is just a normal person and, uh, and gets to help solve a mystery and right or wrong and do something that's, uh, that's good in the world. I would very much like to, to be more like Lucy in that. So (laughs) <laughs> not that I want to be involved in a murder, but you know. Well. <laughs> <laughs> now, Hallie is uh, herself on the verge of releasing her debut novel. And if what you say is yeah. true, that, that so much of yourself goes into that debut, Hallie, now I'm terrified because I've read <laughs> The Lady Upstairs and I, I don't want to believe that there's that much of you in that book. It is dark. <laughs> you know, what's funny is 
as Steph was saying that, that was my immediate thought too. I was like, oh, how much of me is Joe? Uh, you know, I would say similarities in like sense of humor, but I am not nearly as dark a person, I think, in my everyday life as Joe or as the book goes. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's, that's good. Wonderful. And congratulations <laughs> to you, Hallie. That is so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, Eric was telling me in an email that your book was amazing. So uh, I'm excited for that. Thank you so much. That's wonderful to hear. Of course. I think it's so exciting. The debut year is so much fun. It really is. Usually I don't think it includes a global pandemic, but you know, all things. Exactly. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently it's my fault. So sorry about that. Well, Hallie, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I hope you're not too saddened by the delay of your book. Uh, I can say that it's great and it is worth the wait. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate your kind words about the book. You know, still having a novel published this year, so nothing but nothing but happiness. Well, the book is available for pre-order, so uh, people should jump on that. You can always find me on Twitter, at WriterTypes. Uh, I don't get to Facebook too much these days because there's a, a bit of a garbage fire over there, so I, I don't go as often as I should. I, sh- I really should fix that. I, I'm terrible at, at self-promotion. I don't, I don't know how you are, Hallie, but uh, this should not be news to anyone. <laughs> not, I haven't mastered it yet. How about that? Yeah. Well, get used to it. You're going to be doing a lot of talking about yourself once that book is out in the world. (laughs) And if today was any indication, I think you're going to be great at it. Oh, thank you. The archives of all our past shows are at writertypespodcast.com. I'll be back with a new co-host and more great authors very soon. Great job, Hallie. Wonderful to have you. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.